This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books Network. I'm your host, David James Gonzalez, and I'm pleased to be speaking with Carly Goodman, author of Dreamland, America's Immigration Lottery in an Age of Restriction, published by the University of North Carolina Press in 2023. Carly Goodman is a public historian and author of Dreamland. She is a senior editor for Made by History at Time Magazine, previously at the Washington Post, and is a consultant on the reimagined National Immigration Museum at Ellis Island. Hello, Carly, and welcome to the New Books Network. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. Well, it's a pleasure to have you on uh, and to get to discuss your wonderful book. Uh, So to begin, I'm hoping you can just tell us a little bit about your uh, background. Um, Sure. Well, I live in Philadelphia, um, as everybody who lives in Philadelphia will be quick to tell you. Uh, And I got my PhD at Temple University here in the city. Before going to graduate school, I was working in a human rights organization and hearing the stories of asylum seekers coming through New York and seeking out legal assistance, um, among other things that I was working on at that organization. But their stories really spoke to me and um, made me really curious about the history of asylum, immigration, our refugee policy. And so when I was applying to graduate school, I really thought that that's what I would be writing about, uh, humanitarian protection, asylum, uh, refugees, the Refugee Act of 1980. I loved Carl von Tempo's book uh, about the sort of the Cold War history of the topic. And I was, you know, pretty... uh, um, I think starry-eyed and <laughs> eager to go to graduate school and spend spend some time uh, learning and studying after after a period of years working in the so-called real world. Um, so let's see. I um I got to Temple and um decided. Well, well, I think we'll talk about uh, sort of how I moved away from what I had intended to study, which I'm I'm told means that you're a really good graduate student. That you you know what comes out should be really different from what what goes in, um, and we can talk about how that led me to the book. But I was um, always interested in sort of bridging the worlds and not losing sight of the real world implications of historical research and stories. So um, as I finished, I was a public fellow at American Friends Service Committee, which is a Quaker social justice organization here uh, based in Philadelphia, but also working around the country and around the world. Um, So I had this really cool fellowship doing communication stuff and trying to figure out you know what I, I as a historian and as a PhD could bring could bring to that work and to bring to the activists and organizers sort of on the front lines. Um, after that, I spent some time as a visiting assistant professor at LaSalle University, um, teaching all kinds of classes and working on my book. And I also took on this role, editing Made by History, which was then at the Washington Post, working with some other uh, editors where we uh, we really work with scholars at all stages of their career to help them translate their research and insights to a broader non-scholarly, non-academic audience. So had the I've had the opportunity to work with hundreds, if not could it be thousands of of people um, writing sort of short form 1,000, 1,200 word, uh, you know, pieces, putting the 
headline news of our world into historical context and bringing their own scholarly insights to bear on the issues that we all face for really ordinary people. I mean, we're all ordinary people, so that's not really a category, but, um, but just for people who don't have a lot of time or the professional obligation to be reading scholarly monographs and articles. Um, and so that's been just an education and also an amazing opportunity to collaborate with people and to really, um, you know, I, I sometimes say that editing is my love language because I find this, it is such a, a pleasure to be able to, to really engage deeply with someone's work to really, you know, we, we move fast in, um, online publishing, but uh, but to really get to to ask people to sharpen their ideas and to push and to see how good we can make a given piece. Um, I'm sure I've done things since then. Yes, I worked at Nationalities Service Center here in Philly, um, a hundred-year-old uh, immigrant services agency here in the city of Philadelphia. Um, and then um, most recently, I've been working on developing some of the historical content for um, a reimagined National Immigration Museum at Ellis Island, uh, which has been a really fascinating um, opportunity to do a big public history project engaging with multiple stakeholders and thinking about um, what kinds of stories we can tell about recent immigration that will engage visitors and um, perhaps push us to imagine new possibilities. Yeah, thank you for all of that. I mean, I'm really fascinated by your your you know work in the nonprofit sector and and how that leads you right into historical uh, study and scholarship and as a profession. Uh, also, I'm just a big fan of the Made by History uh, series. Um, I think the work is incredibly important. I've created assignments in you know in my class my classrooms here, um, uh, college classrooms, to try to get students to model that type of writing to take what they're learning in the classroom, right, and you know translate it, if you will, or find a, you know a contemporary issue where they can use that knowledge and put it to work, right? And starting to practice, I feel, in writing a genre that, um, or in a style that I think is, you know, uh, perhaps much more accessible. I don't know if that's the, the right word, but it has a much broader audience, right? I think has translates better, I think, um, outside of just, um, you know, training students to do the type of work we do, which I think is incredibly valid. Like the methodology of history, I think is incredibly valid. Uh, but uh, I like all the different ways, right? And I appreciate particularly, again, this series because of it, it illustrates a way that we can use that type of training, right? Knowledge and and, and style uh, and, and just, you know, reach a much broader audience. So just uh, kudos yeah. to that work. It really starts with investment, you know, in historical research and methods. We, we, there's no such thing as made by history if there's no historical profession to sustain it. But I do think that it has so perhaps some great applications in the classroom because a lot of the time you really have to have a mastery of a topic, right, to write an op-ed and to write, even if you're writing in sort of simplistic sentences, you're writing a, a simple, clear narrative. That's always what we're going for is, is not, not to lose nuance, but clarity. Mm -hmm. um, and that takes incredible, <laughs> incredible knowledge base. And so if we can help students to kind of become owners of their knowledge and to recognize their own expertise, um, to say like, oh, you've gone off and you've, you've done research. You know something that I don't know. It's time for you to figure out ways to share that. How would you explain this to your brother? How would you explain this to your friends? Um, I think that it, it does offer a model for that kind of communication. Um, and so I'm really uh, always so heartened to hear that it has utility. Certainly, certainly it does. Um, well, speaking of expertise, let's, uh, you know, talk about uh, your book and this this topic, which um, I was immediately, uh, you know, fascinated by uh, just the, the title of the book when it probably popped up on, you know, a catalog or email that was sent to me in some ways, right, as, uh, you know, being someone that's, that's studied immigration history and teaches it, right, I'm always on the lookout for uh, new scholarship. But your book signaled a, a, a program, a policy that I actually did, wasn't aware of, um, and that's this uh, lottery uh, program. Uh, so will you tell us a, a bit about how you found out about the immigration visa lottery program and, uh, and how that led eventually to this book? 
Um, sure. Uh, and I think, you know, I I've been giving papers and talking about the lottery for a lot of years now. And almost every time I do, I'll encounter somebody who sort of says, oh, I'd never heard of this, but I heard you talk about it. And then all of a sudden I met a taxi driver who'd won the lottery. My, you know, my cousin's friend <laughs> came to university and they had won the lottery. So you start to see it everywhere once you know about its existence. But I too had no idea what it was. Um, I think I had mentioned that I had some familiarity with uh, some elements of our immigration system. When I started graduate school, I was thinking about um, forms of humanitarian protection, the our refugee resettlement program, access to asylum. Those were some of the things that that I was hoping to historicize and to study. But I was uh, traveling in West Africa. I was uh, without a smartphone. I think it was 2011. Some people might've had smartphones. I certainly did not have one yet. Um, so uh, I can have some nostalgia for, for that period of time in my life. But I was stopping at internet cafes uh, on my travels to set up logistics, stay in touch with people back home. Um, and a lot of the people at the cafes were looking at the Department of State website, the United States Department of State website, you know, at the computer down from me, uh, you know, in Cape Coast or Accra in Ghana. And I sort of looked to my my partner, my uh, husband, he would become my husband. We were traveling together. He's an immigration guy, an immigration law guy. Um, and I was like, what is this? He's like, oh, I don't, I don't really know. Um, they were looking for information about this diversity visa lottery, a program that really has uh, immense importance for people in a lot of countries around the world because it represents one of the only ways they might ever legally migrate to the United States. Uh, so it is really a big deal. Millions of people enter this lottery every year. A lot of people know about it, even if they don't enter the lottery. And yet um, here in the United States, uh, for most of its existence, it really has flown under the radar. Uh, so I thought that that was just interesting, right? Like that's a kernel of something that there's this this thing that is part of US policy that looks totally different from outside the United States from within it. Um, so that was sort of the kernel of the book. And, but I actually think it's like indicative of something broader, which is that there's a lot about our immigration system that is not part of the public debate or conversation. The sort of ordinary functioning of the immigration system and the legal admission system is not something that makes headline news, right? Because it's just daily life. It's people coming in, reuniting with their family members, their employers, sponsoring them for a permanent visa, you know, consular processing, there's all this sort of stuff humming along in the background. Um, and we can talk about whether the system, you know, has flaws <laughs> and whether it operates smoothly or not for the people in the system. You know, I think I'm tipping my my hat, my hand, my hand, I'm tipping my hand that I, I think that there are a lot of issues uh, that are, are worthy of our attention, but there's very little like broad understanding of how the system is supposed to work and works, right? And so there's a lot of focus instead on the parts of the system that are sort of visibly breaking down or that are causing, you know, immense and visible and sometimes invisible harm. Um, but that this whole legal admission system really gets very little attention. Um, and it's like a million green cards a year. Uh, so. I think it's like half a million people coming in with a green card and half a million people within the United States getting a green card. That's just like a lot of immigration policy that we don't really hear too much about. Um, and about 50,000 of them are coming in with a diversity visa. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Yeah, no, that is, you know, in of itself, I think, fascinating. It's something that really caught my attention as I started uh, reading the book, that there's this 
aspect of this, you know, there's this policy that kind of really goes against the grain of so much of what we, of what get, gets covered in the news. Uh, and I'll frankly say, even what gets covered in academic scholarship, you know, most of the scholarship really ha uh, focuses on, uh, you know, the development of certain big policies, right? And then, um, you know, the experiences of migrants, right, that are traversing, you know, sort of a really complex network and web, depending upon the region that you're coming from and, and how policy is literally trying to uh, limit right flows from certain parts uh, of the country and and attract different types of of, of immigrants um, and so yes you know certainly uh, you know this aspect which is you know a, a small part but really I think fits into this a, a larger narrative of what many people uncritically believe about right U.S. immigration right that the United States is this um, you know welcoming nation right uh, for migrants from you know throughout the world in a land of opportunity hence your title right your your title is dreamland um, or might you will you break down that title a little bit for us why you chose that um, to uh, kind of introduce right readers to uh, uh, this history that you describe yeah and I'll just say on the on the last point too um I think the scholarship's focus on restriction is, you know, essential, right? There's, it's a very restrictionist system, and those restrictions are sometimes hidden from our narratives, right? The nation of immigrants, or what have you. Um, and so recognizing, right, 1965 is a liberalizing law, but it's also a restrictive law, um, that making that visible is really, really important. Um, and also that who the country admits is a signal and a representation of what it values, right? And so thinking about the importance of family unification in the law, why why is that the, the basis of so much of the immigration system? Thinking about the connection between immigration and economic, um, you know, and economics, labor, things like that, that's really essential. Um, we mentioned humanitarian protections, but then of course the creation of a, an immigrant category just to enhance U.S. diversity is also a very important signal that the United States is making there in 1990 about what it values um, and how it envisions itself. Um, for the title, uh, I really took it from a lot of the commentary that I was hearing uh, from people in West African countries. So I, I went to Ghana and to Cameroon and conducted research. I, I interviewed people. I talked to people at internet cafes and photography studios and travel agencies about the meaning of the green card lottery and how they imagined the United States uh, and what it would mean to, to migrate to the United States. And people sort of said, it, you know, it's a land of dreams. It's a dreamland. It's a land of milk and honey. It's God's own country. Um, and so what I try to do in the book is understand how that representation moves and what it means to people, um, where people are starting to imagine that access to a good life requires emigration requires leaving home and seeking greener pastures elsewhere. Um, and so at times I, um, you know, I, I, I was thinking about people's expectations and whether and how they would uh, overlap and ma match up with with the reality of uh, what the United States really asks of people, of all of South immigrants uh, specifically, um, and the sort of distance between how it's imagined and how it's experienced, um, which I think is, it's, that's not just a, a gap for aspiring immigrants, but for all of us and for the way that the nation portrays itself um, more broadly. Yeah, definitely. It, that makes me think of, you know, particularly as we're talking about some of the nations and the people who have benefited the most from this uh, policy, those being um, immigrants from uh, from African nations. Um, but that's not how the policy, as much as it, it was meant to be a, a diversity lottery, right, uh, and a green, green card lottery, which itself is is literally like a lottery. Maybe we can talk about that for, for a little bit, just how how does winning a, a green card, right, literally like winning a lottery, right, allow you to just jump ahead maybe this is the wrong thing but kind of like skip this line <laughs> that people mm -hmm. imagine right that is involved right we hear these things like there's a line there's a right way to do things <laughs> there's other people that talk about like for some regions right there just is no line there is no process but 
in, in I think the lottery, right, is really the, the apt phrase to describe what this is. And and getting one, right, truly is like winning, um, you know, the, the lotteries that maybe many of us think of where you win millions of dollars, right? Um, well, this is one of the most interesting things about it, right? I learned that there's this green card lottery where the United States is allocating immigrant visas to people based on what, chance? play a game of chance, um, uproot your life. Um, and I think that that format has made it very popular globally. The United States has not set, there are certain criteria that um, an applicant has to, to meet. You have to have a high school diploma or it's equivalent or perhaps uh, a number of years of work experience in a trained work field as, you know, uh, as set out by the United States. Um, so it's, restrictive in a sense, but it's also fairly open compared to a lot of the other visa categories that we have. Um, I think um, people are perhaps not terribly aware of how the immigration system and the legal admission system works more broadly. Um, so maybe we can we can sort of start there and say how the system is sort of supposed to work. <laughs> um, so um, terrible habit of historians. We're always like, let me just tell you about the recent past. Wait, we have to go back. Uh, so I think I'll start with the 1920s. <laughs> why, why not? Why wouldn't we just go back exactly 100 years to 1924, um, which is um, a really important date in immigration history. It's the, uh, it's the year that the U.S. Congress creates the National Origins Quota System for Immigration. So um, a previous period of fairly open immigration, specifically from Europe, comes to a close in 1924. So uh, Congress numerically limits the number of immigrants who are going to be admitted um, quite drastically from, from very high numbers at the beginning of the 20th century to about 150,000 a year um, through the middle part of the century, the 1920s to the 1960s. But it's not just numerical limits, right? It's not just the quantity of people coming that Congress seeks to, to change. They also want to change who is allowed to come. So, uh, and there's different rules for different regions of the world. There's a to almost total Asian exclusion is part of this law. And that is the sort of the culmination of an incremental process that has been that had been happening over the previous 40 years to completely exclude Asian immigrants on the basis of race. Um, now, when it comes to Europe, uh, they decide to rank the ethnicities of Europeans in order to um, prioritize the entry of Northern and Western Europeans who these eugenicists who are making the, the, the law really deem to be racially desirable people who conform with their idea of what the racial stock of the country should look like. They also seek to highly restrict the entry of Eastern Europeans, Jews, and Italians, um, because those are ethnicities of people who are deemed undesirable, racially undesirable, um, eugenically undesirable. Uh, and those were the people who were coming in those early decades of the 20th century. So it's really um, an astounding act that, that they do in 1924. Uh, and actually, we live in its shadow ever since because it's really uh, become common sense that a nation should restrict immigration uh, numerically um, uh, and according to, to whatever criteria it wants to set out. That's also the the root of things like the formation of the Border Patrol to enforce new immigration laws, as well as a system of um, consular processing so that people have to get a visa before they can travel, which is sort of a new requirement for people. Um, that system is in place until 1965 with some cracks in the <laughs> along the way. Um, and in 1965, it's like no longer um, really considered politically viable to have such a racist eugenics based system for doing immigration. The United States is in the midst of a civil rights revolution in which that form of discrimination is becoming um, increasingly not tolerated within formal institutions and policies. It's also an era where the United States is seeking to win hearts and minds in a decolonizing world and to beat the Soviet Union in a 
you know, sometimes it's a cold war, sometimes it's hot war, sometimes it's an ideological war with the Soviet Union between the United States and the USSR to sort of say that the US is offering the, the better way of life. And so the endurance of these restrictions has become a global embarrassment by 1965. And uh, Congress acts once again to create a new system. That system is still sort of the basis of what we have today. And it, uh, instead of, um, sort of ranking all of the countries in the regions of the world in terms of how desirable they are. It sets uh, much higher numerical caps and also prioritizes family unification, um, workers, and a little bit of humanitarian need in terms of who is going to be admitted, treating all countries of the world equally. Um, so if you want to become an immigrant to the United States after 1965, you really need, for the most part, a U.S. citizen to sponsor you. So whether that's your immediate family member, your wife, uh, your child, your parent, or uh, a sort of um, a different family relationship, like a sibling, um, you need uh, somebody in the United States to say, it's in my interest <laughs> to bring this person over. So there's no um, general line. You don't just get your um, ticket and take the boat to Ellis Island. Uh, it's a process by which you need to re receive an immigrant visa. And to do that, you need to show one of these family relationships. Or uh, I, as I'm sort of alluding to, there are some other pathways related to, to work and employment, but they're much, much smaller compared to the family unification system. Very good. And thanks for sharing that and providing that, that background for us, which is essential to understanding how this lottery program uh, comes about. So will you will you talk about that? Um, it comes about in the mid-1990s, right? There's discussions, you know, that start looming about um, the existing system. By the way, the system that you just described is still the existing system, <laughs> this preference for family unification with, again, some provisions for, um, you know, uh, worker programs, worker visas, right, student visas, other types of things right, that are more limited. Um, so that's still the program uh, and policies, but there's there's discussions, right, in the early 90s that there's a problem, you know, with mm -hmm. this, and hence there's a need for a diverse, a, a, leader, a lottery program to diversify. What did they mean by diversify? <laughs> and who were they aiming to attract uh, in, you know, the early to mid-1990s as this was developing? Yeah, well, actually, I'm going to take you back to the 1980s um, and say that, the, well, actually, let me go back to 65 because um, I've just, what I've described is still a very restrictive system, but it's been liberalized compared to the 1920s. Um, one thing that it does is it imposes new limits on Western Hemisphere immigration. And that becomes really, really important in immigration politics and policy um, because access to legal immigration pathways uh, for Mexican immigrants specifically are really, really curtailed as a result of that 65 Act, as well as the end of the Bracero guest worker program in 1964. Um, and so um, when there's a mismatch between demand for visas and supply of visas, the result is uh, is unauthorized immigration, particularly in a context where uh, labor patterns and whole industries are built up around, um, like dependent upon the flow of immigrant workers from certain places. So um, by the time you get to the 1980s, um, Immigration has really changed substantially since 1965. Um, it's changed in a few ways. There's a new um, focus on this sort of budding policy problem of undocumented immigration. And so that that is going to occupy policymakers um, during the decade uh, where they're trying to sort of figure out what's going on? How do we address this problem? Is it just punishing people? Do we allow people to regularize their status and stay? How are we going to, you know, get the system under control in that way? But the another issue is that the legal admission system that was that was created in 65 um, has not as some of the policymakers sort of promised, maintained the same demographics of immigration as there were in the 1950s and early 1960s. By the 1980s, 80% 80 of immigrants are coming from Latin American and Asian countries, which is a really um, strong 
reversal from how things were in the 1950s under that very restrictive system. Now, that's in part because of the changes in the immigration policy and, and who is allowed to be admitted in. It's also a result of U.S. foreign policy, changing geopolitics, U.S. wars in Asia. Um, it's uh, It intersects with a changing approach to refugee resettlement and admissions. So there's all these things happening. But what um, policymakers are noticing is that, well, immigration really has grown a lot more diverse. It's almost entirely Asian and Latin American. There's very few Europeans coming anymore. And what's more, um, there's, uh, well, hold on, let me, let me pause my story. Is this a, can I, can I just pause? Um, I don't know where we are in time, can make a note, because I'm gonna tell you the story now. Um, okay. So those two issues, the changing demographics of immigration and the new political problem of undocumented immigration really intersects in the, the mid-1980s when um, a group of unauthorized Irish immigrants becomes really concerned and activated. They um, There's a, a cohort of people who uh, have to leave Ireland in the early 1980s um, and what they do what a lot of people have done historically, there's an economic problem in their country, they move somewhere else where they have better opportunities. Um, now the problem for these undocumented Irish immigrants is that they can't access visas. They don't have US family members to sponsor them. It's not like the system that had admitted them previously, right? So it's not like the mid 19th century when so many Irish people were coming to the United States. Um, and it's not even like the 1950s when the Irish had a really uh, healthy and robust um, immigrant quota because they were one of the favored groups under the, the National Origins Quotas Act. In fact, there's almost no way for them to come as independent immigrants without someone to sponsor them or someone to, to, to sort of say, I need to be reunited with these people. So um, what a lot of people do is they get visitors visas, tourist visas, uh, student visas, they come. And then when those visas expire, they stay. They stay because there's no opportunities for them back home and they're finding ways to make a living um, and to survive here in the United States. Um, as I write about in the book, they are experiencing this not only, in a, not only as precarity, but also it's in the midst of this conversation about the problem of undocumented immigration. So there's more and more sort of scrutiny on people's immigration status. There's uh, people really taking a second look at work authorization documents, social security numbers, things like that. And so they become um, caught up in this attention to undocumented immigration that they don't really think should apply to people like them. Um, and so they organize and begin to lobby for policy solutions, right? The problem of undocumented immigration is a policy problem. It's a lack of access to visas. What's the solution to that problem? Well, uh, the United States government has found a lot of different solutions, such as detention, deportation, and um, surveillance and human misery, but another solution to this problem is the allocation of more visas. So they go to Congress and they argue that there should be access to visas for people like them, hardworking people, people who just like their ancestors, just like the Irish immigrants who helped build the country, um, just want to come and do their part and integrate into American society. And after all, look at all the Irish surnames, <laughs> look at all the Irish pubs, look at the, the traces left by Irish immigrants on the culture. Shouldn't there be a place for them? Um, and so they wind up going through a lot of different kinds of arguments, which I talk about in the book, a lot of sort of policy proposals, some short-term lotteries, some short-term visa programs, um, but where they really have success in, um, in uh, embedding this idea into the permanent legal admission system is with the idea of diversity. And they say we, you know, one of the, one of the ways they frame that diversity um, and really appeal to, to some um, reactionary forces is to say, look at how 
the immigration stream has become so Asian and Latin American. That's because of the family system. What about people who don't have family members who can sponsor them? What about people who are shut out and excluded from that system? What if you admitted independent immigrants in order to diversify the immigration stream, to make it marginally less Asian and Latin American by facilitating the immigration of people like us, pe people who are Irish, people who are European, people who are shut out by this family system and have no way in, um, who, if we ad 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 admit people like this, will not only sort of whiten the immigration stream and uh, and sort of push back against sort of forces of demographic change that a lot of people are finding uncomfortable, but also admitting people without these family ties is a way of um, ensuring that people who are coming have to adapt to mainstream American life. There's concern from Senator Alan Simpson, a Republican from Wyoming. He's talking about the way that Spanish-speaking immigrants are forming these enclaves and obviously not even just immigrants, Spanish-speaking Americans, right? That he's looking around and he's seeing the concentration of new communities of people who are Spanish speakers um, and saying, well, this this threatens to balkanize us, right? This threatens to, well, that might be a, an anachronism. <laughs> this threatens to, um, uh, to be a, a form of, of separatism. And we might see the sort of unity of the American project break apart. But if you have people coming in, not only English speakers, but hey, non-Spanish speakers generally, right, then everybody has to adapt to the way that things are, to the mainstream, to a, you know, a, a majority white Anglo country. Um, and so that is certainly part of the reasoning behind this, this diversity, um, this push for diversity, which I think is really interesting given um, given how we're in another moment where diversity is sort of uh, a buzzword and, you know, topic of concern, but they see diversity as a way of um, sort of ensuring this nation of immigrants models in which people will have to adapt to the mainstream. Uh, yeah, certainly. And it's, it's actually amazingly quite consistent, right? Isn't it, you know, with, uh, you know, the racial fears that had, you know, um, you know, always kind of been this undertone and, and not necessarily, as you mentioned, in 24, it wasn't an undertone and it was explicitly racist policy. But even I'm thinking of the reforms in, uh, you know, in the 50s and the 60s, right? There's still, right, this kind of like navel gazing, you know, that's going on in the development of these policies of of how to kind of turn back the clock, you know, if you will. And, and you know, that whole family unification program, you know, as I've read and studied, right, again, the, the focus was not to create this, um this you know, opportunity for massive migration from Latin America and Asia, but but actually to refacilitate, right, and respark, right, immigration from Northwestern Europe again, or broadly Europe, right, uh, at that time. So um, one thing that I was just fascinated with in, in reading that and hearing you explain it again is just how consistent, you know, it is with U.S. immigration policy, particularly throughout the 20th century, and and you know the the kind of concern over uh, demographic change, uh, and now what may be referred to as you know the brown of America, you know, if you will, uh, or uh, again, that too much diversity could be a problem, but yet here diversity is being used as, you know, another, you know, phrase or euphemism to kind of make a return, right, to a uh, kind of the good old times, or again, that very Ellis Island-like paradigm of immigrants coming here and, you know, um, there's this type of their own bootstrap type of efforts, right? Succeeding and and achieving, you know, in America and, and thereby contributing, but not right, changing it too much, right? Because the <laughs> fact that we have Irish pubs everywhere and you celebrate St. Patrick's Day, uh, apparently was no signal that immigrants had made any changes, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm of course being facetious here, facetious here. Um, you know, that somehow, you know, taco stands and and salsa, you know trumping uh, uh, ketchup as America's favorite condiment in the 90s and early 2000s was seen as a problem, right? Uh, um, well, even yeah. when it's seen as a, as a celebration, it doesn't, it doesn't go along with policies of actual mm -hmm. inclusion and equality, right? That it's mm -hmm. like, maybe, maybe immigrants can, can work and contribute, um, boost the economy, but can they really belong? That's like always this question in immigration history. Um, which is an open question, I think. 
Certainly. So uh, with, with the other fascinating thing, so there's a, your book separated into multiple parts. And like the first part really focuses on the development of this program. And as you mentioned, there were various other kind of uh, very smaller type of proposals that are, you know, targeting these, you know, undocumented Irish emigrants, uh, uh, right, that are legalizing their status and eventually develops into um, the lottery program that is, that is um, you know, attached to the Immigration Naturalization Act, right, as so much of all these policies that we are talking that we are talking about are referred to, right? It's not like they're they're these separate pieces, but all kind of like one big corpus, right, of immigration law, right, that is continuously kind of evolving and changing. Um, but it, I wonder if we can talk a bit about. So we understand the the goals of the program. Um, there were some the the bulk of the book really focused on these kind of unexpected outcomes, right? And while it's meant to open the doors, right, for uh, undocumented Irish and maybe some other forms of European migrants, it it an unintended outcome like the family reunification program is it opens a door for uh, people from other parts of the world that have been locked out and intentionally blocked, you know, from the U.S. immigration system. Uh, we talk about those uh, people, those countries, and and how they recognize this opportunity and start using the program uh, for uh, the means that we've already kind of alluded to, right, as a, as a pathway to African uh, migration. Yeah, so, um, so the Permanent Lottery is part of the Immigration Act of 1990, and the first summer that the lottery is operating, this Permanent Lottery is, is in June of 1994 to distribute green cards for fiscal year 1995, which means actually that um, I'm not sure when this this episode will drop, but in May of 2024, the people who entered the lottery last spring will go and see if they've won. It'll be the 30th year of its operation. Um, so I'd say a 30 years of operation is worthy of, of a history, even though it's fairly recent history and some of us have lived memories of some of these years. Um, so um, the way that they... It's it's such an interesting thing uh, in immigration policy history because, you know, you can frame things in race neutral and colorblind ways that won't have race neutral or colorblind outcomes. That's like one of the 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 a key lesson from 1965, and it's true in 1990 as well. So, what they do is they look at the family system and they say, well, 80% of people are coming through. Um, through the family system, um, or they, they look at the, the concentration of Asian and Latin American people coming through the family system, and they try to do an inverse. So they divide the world up into these regions. They say Europe and Africa are really left out of this system. Europe, because of the lack of recent family, like there's new restrictions in 65 on some of these Europeans. And then Africa because it's always been excluded. Um, so they try to minimize access uh, for the visa, the diversity visas uh, to Asia and Latin America because they figure those regions are already sending a lot of immigrants through these other pathways. Let's maximize visas and optimize visas for Europeans and um, Africans within this diversity visa scheme. Um, then within regions, there's low admission and high admission countries. But other than that, it's really run as an open global lottery. If you're country has sent less than like 50,000 immigrants over the course of the previous five years, you're eligible. So there's a number of, there's about 10 or maybe 12 countries that send more immigrants than that, that aren't, um, that aren't eligible to participate in the lottery at all. But otherwise, these countries are considered rather underrepresented in the immigration stream. Um, and, and so it, it operates as a lottery. At first, you mail in your entry and to a P.O. box. I talk about post offices all the time in this book. Um, and then later it goes, it moves online. So since 2003, it's been a, an online entry system. So you just sort of send in your, register your interest in applying. It's free. You send a picture. There's biometric stuff now. There's all kinds of like security stuff. But really it's supposed to be this open, open-ish lottery. Um, and then if your application is selected, you have the opportunity to then apply for an immigrant visa the way that, say, a spouse or a sibling of a U.S. citizen is as well. So you go through consular processing, vetting, security, and then you receive a diversity visa and you can come to the United States um, with work authorization, get your green card, path to citizenship, 
the American dream, right? <laughs> that's the, that's that's it in a nutshell. Um, and um, what my book discusses, what I think a lot of people have found so so fascinating about this program, is that it's not a lot of visas. It's not a huge number of people. It's about fifty thousand a year, um, but it has actually wound up disproportionately serving African immigrants. You know, because African immigrants are shut out a lot of uh, out of a lot of the other categories. There's high visa denial rates for historical and race racist reasons. Um, there's a lot of restrictions on the movement of African immigrants historically and in the present. And so this is a program where people can register their interest in emigrating to the United States. And then if they're selected, actually receive a visa and come. And so as a result, you know, you know, um, every African country has sent somebody through the diversity visa lottery program. Um, and so that there's these new communities, new streams of immigration, new opportunities for people as a result of this program. Africa has really disproportionately um, used the diversity visa lottery, although because of the system's focus on family unity, right, once somebody has come, they can then petition for some of their family members to come. So as a result of the lottery, you see increased usage of these other visa categories, which is an interesting effect as well. Um, but also the migratory routes and networks create opportunities for high-skilled workers and engineers and all, all kinds of other people to sort of access American migration opportunities than than existed before. Um, so that's the that's the big the big twist. It's not a spoiler to say that that's a big topic of of the book. Yeah, and there's some fascinating. I think that you provide a you know a lot of analysis in regards to why this is, and um, quite a bit of of this. You you talked about the kind of the 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 part that there really is few other or little to no other pathways right for uh, immigrants coming from African nations. Um, but there's also your your book describes it, you know the type of you know U.S. intervention that is going on, the structural adjustment policies that are essentially, um, you know, working in tandem, if you will, right, with this lottery program to, uh, like many other, you know, people in places around the world, uh, viewing immigration, right, as pretty much their their hope, right, their only hope. This is the life chance that I need to take. And um, so um, can you talk about, you know, maybe a little bit of, you don't have to go into depth on those policies, but, you know, the, the effect that those policies have and essentially, you know, how that kind of then then leads, because I'm still just fascinated by uh, the fact that, you know, particularly African nations, Ghana, Cameroon, Nigeria, Ethiopia, a a couple others, right, where they seem to be the big winners, right, if you will. And so there's something happening there, right, within those nations, right, as as the policy develops, and they're responding to, again, more these global geopolitics and economic shifts, right, to kind of creates a, I think, an expectation uh, uh, or a hope that this is a real chance, right? As much as it's a lottery, they're able to see like, okay, many other people have benefited from this. And so it's something that annually they're looking forward to and, and, and planning for and, and using, right, as, as an opportunity. Yeah, um, well, it never, uh, immigration doesn't happen in a vacuum. So even when you focus on the US policies, you have to sort of take a step back and understand the broader context of, the kind of global movements that we're seeing in the last four decades, right? That um, I, and I thought it was really important to sort of try to situate the lottery in that context uh, because I feel like sometimes in our, in like the way that immigration is discussed in the United States, it's like an inevitability that of course, everybody wants to come here. Um, And, and, and actually so many, so many Americans are, are born and, and grow up never even considering that they might have to move to another country in order to live a good life, right? Um, so I, I find that, you know, that that is sort of echoes the, the stru- structural inequality in the world, that the United States is a powerful and wealthy nation, um, and that power and wealth is sometimes uh, achieved at the um, expense of, of other places that um, uh, sometimes places where it has a, a a very powerful footprint. So um, I am really interested in the fact that um, the lottery 
shows up in people's lives in this time of, um, in some cases, really deep privation. Um, the countries that I that I write about are all countries that gained their independence from European empires, and uh, post-independence leaders really had a lot of um, plans for what kind of countries these countries were going to be, what what services states were going to owe their citizens, what it would mean to be Ghanaian or Nigerian or Cameroonian in the world. And by the, the 70s and 80s, you start to see um, real economic and social problems and uh, forms of um, intervention, financial intervention, um, economic intervention, um, the use of loans to uh, to push these countries to restructure their whole economies in order to be more attractive, to attract capital, um, particularly Western capital. And so um, there's something called structural adjustment, uh, which happens in a lot of these these different countries in a lot of different particular contexts which i try to be attentive to in the book but also they wind up creating privation for people so you see a shrinking access to formal employment you see the shrinking of civil service the um, privatization of parastatal corporations um, big employers of people being sort of pri privatized and a lot of people looking into the informal sector in order to just survive so a flurries of entrepreneurial activity the turning to provisioning of services um, things that you know are not are not so alien to to the United States in the same in the same period but it's happening on on a rather dramatic scale um, particularly in in African cities um, and the the lottery shows up right at this time and the it it does sort of two things it creates a kind of um, new product for people to try to sell so you, uh, I write about what I I, they're called visa entrepreneurs, people who are sort of peddling visa services. Hey, I can help you. I can take your photo. I can help you fill out the form. I can help ensure that this gets mailed to the right place in the United States. I understand U.S. bureaucracy. Let me help you do that for a fee. Um, come use my my internet connection at my internet cafe. That will also cost you a fee. Uh, and so this this sort of free program becomes something that people are paying in order to, to enter to better their chances because the stakes are, are pretty high. Um, but the lottery also comes in and says, take your chances, go somewhere else, somewhere else where you can use, where you can finish school, where you can uh, use the skills that you learned at university um, and propel yourself into, into a higher success. Uh, go and, and make use of, of your talents in a place where you'll be paid properly for them. And then you can send uh, your savings home to your family as remittances. You can pay the school fees that are being imposed. You can help your family pay for health healthcare that is also now costing something at point of service, right? Um, and so the lottery seems to answer some of these these problems. Yeah, that, that makes me think of, um, you know, particularly as I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, us uh, wrapping up our conversation of you know how this uh, returning kind of to, to this restrictionist um, era that we're that, that we're within right and we're still in <laughs> so finally just I'm reminding myself of this right because I'm reading you know yeah yes a recent history book but a history that we've lived and are living right um, uh, because it's a policy that that it still exists surprisingly which uh, again me knowing really nothing about the policy um, I, I was kind of like uh, you know. Uh, really on the edge of my seat reading throughout it waiting for it to end waiting for you to tell me like when this thing got terminated because i just couldn't believe that it somehow would have survived right all of these years um and particularly since you know the mid-1990s is the the last i think significant piece of of bigger immigration right reform policy uh the 1996 uh, illegal immigration reform and immigrant responsibility act which is what i'm thinking of right that comes 10 years after uh the, the uh, immigration recall immigration reform and control and restrict i'm probably i'm getting the, the acronym wrong urca urca uh, Im, right so yeah immigration reform and control, and control act. act there we go now yeah. i got the, now i got it right right so those are the last two big pieces right uh, essentially 86 and then and then 96 of of reform and since then um 
there, there really has been very little. Um, there hasn't been any of these big grand bargains anymore. We hear all the talk of comprehensive immigration reform. It's always shot down. Another right attempt recently, um, you know, just died uh, essentially with the House refusing uh, to move forward. You know, uh, on the Senate bill um, that would have addressed you know contemporary issues in regards to. Um, essentially reimagining or, or readdressing our, our immigrant our refugee policy, asylum policy, things of that stuff, dealing with backlogs at the border. Uh, so that's just the most recent iteration, right, within the last, uh, I think, you know, at least 10 years, there's been at least three bigger attempts at comprehensive immigration reform by each administration that have died, right? Um, and so we're in this still, this age of restriction, and it makes this, it's like this Cinderella story of this, uh, if you will, again, forgive me for the analogy, of <laughs> this little immigration bill that could, and policy that could and has and is still there. And although people have tried to kill it uh, in, in recent years, it, it's still there. So how has this happened? Um um, yeah, so there's, I think there's like three questions embedded in your question, at least. Um, so one, one thread is about just congressional inaction. This is part of the INA. It's embedded in our immigration statutes. It operates. And with the exception of the COVID pandemic, when consular processing really ground to a halt, it really has continued to operate every year sort of regardless of what else is going on, um, which is which I actually think is really interesting, like the way that bureaucracies sort of sometimes function. Um, there's a second um, thing that you're saying here, uh, which is like kind of about how immigration policy changes in a context of congressional inaction, um, because you're right that we haven't seen major bills. We've seen comprehensive immigration reform shot down many times. We've seen the DREAM Act brought up again and again, never passed. Um, but we have also seen in this period the reorganization of the whole immigration bureaucracy, the creation of a whole new department, the Department of Homeland Security, ICBP, USCIS. Uh, so, and then I think you know, especially in the Trump era, we've seen how much the executive branch can do to shape and change immigration, even in a context of congressional inaction, um, where the status quo continues. So um, I think that's probably an unfortunate set of lessons for the next four years, whatever they may bring, um, but that there really are ways that even in the absence of congressional action, that the operation of the immigration system can be can be highly disrupted. Um, so a really interesting lesson for us and something for us to consider going forward. Um, and and then it's, it, you know, I'm sort of um, interested in like the, and I talk about in the book as well, like the ways that um, people have tried to kill the lottery, <laughs> like the terms with which they've tried to kill it, uh, I think are as interesting as the idea that the United States would announce that it values diversity by holding a diversity visa lottery. So um, there's concerns that the visas would be better off used to address some of the backlogs in the immigration system, that this is a, a sort of silly use of visas when there are people who are waiting and in need. So that's one of the the, the big and, and perhaps most valid criticisms that that I've heard that um, that that there's this is a li limited resource, limited purposefully, um, but in an age of limited resources, shouldn't it go to the people who are most in need? Um, and actually, what's so powerful about the 1990 Act is that it was this rare moment where there was not this kind of zero sum arguing over a finite number of visas. In fact, they add visas to create the lottery. There's concerns about national security at times that that immigrants are coming in. Why would we randomly select people to come in? Isn't that, you know, exposing us to terroristic violence? Um, but that's those are pretty unfounded as well, given the the vetting that people have to undergo. During the like 2013 debate, there's a lot of talk about taking them away from diversity to give them to STEM. And anyone who works in a university knows that there's been an obsession with STEM as if it's the only form of uh, knowledge or the only kind of job that matters. Um, but it, it points to that kind of like technocracy kind of approach that like this is not rational. It should be more rational. We need more STEM. Never mind what the job market is for people with engineering degrees or computer science degrees or the state of our tech industry. Um, 
And uh, I think just uh, the last thing I want to to get to in this sort of this saga of how people have tried to undermine the the diversity visa lottery is that it took a long time for anyone to sort of come out with an affirmative argument for it because it has this sort of weird history where it's these Irish people and diversity means white people. And it was kind of like um, people sort of said at the time, like, this is just like blatant pandering to these Irish Americans. Like, is this really necessary for us? Um, and even in all these arguments about like what would make the better better use, more rational use of these these visas, um, it's really around 2013 during that comprehensive immigration reform fight that you start to see people coming out and saying actually it's important to retain this lottery because it's one of the major pathways for African immigrants, and it serves African immigrants specifically. Yes, African immigrants can come with STEM visas. Yes, African immigrants can come with families. But this is a form of visa that prioritized the entry of people who were long shut out of this system. And and it has worked, right? People have come. They have built lives. They have contributed their talents. They Their, their children can go to, to school and to college and build better futures. You know, remittances have helped communities survive uh, during times of economic downturn like this is a good thing and also we shouldn't give up a pathway that enables a future with black immigration in it and i found this really powerful and those arguments were then revived again after president former president trump tried to call for the lottery to be to be completely shut down sort of people saying wait a second by trying to eliminate this visa category. This isn't just a technical conversation, right? This isn't a conversation, you know, it's race neutral, right? It's, uh, it happens in these colorblind terms. It's just one type of visa substituted for another, but we know what the impact of this will be. The impact will be to curtail black immigration to the United States. And in fact, in the, the person of Trump, it becomes very evident, right? That that's the purpose of trying to shut down this, this lottery thing. Um, and I find it very powerful that people, um, should speak out in defense of a future <laughs> when there's so much work to do about uh, helping people who are already here, helping people um, live more dignified lives by get getting them the status that they that they should have, that we should give them, right? That um, getting people out of detention, getting people off of deportation flights, all of that is incredibly pressing life or death stuff. But to sort of say, but we also need to imagine that we're a country that has a future with Black immigration in it, I think is really powerful. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, you know, it's, I'll, I'll say, and while this isn't the purpose of historical scholarship, I mean, I I love a good story. I think this is one of the things that, that drew me to this method, you know, of, of scientific inquiry, if you will, and and study um, uh, that, you know, of of I've I've learned so much, and I, I love all the, the. There's so much great scholarship that is coming out, um, that has really really transformed you know me uh, as I've been on my own journey of learning about the U.S. immigration history. Um, I don't know over the past decade and decade and a half or so, whatever it's been. Um, but your book, you know, actually is it's one of the few that's left me hopeful, right? <laughs> I mean, and I don't know it's not the intent of it necessarily, but it's just like um, I just can't help. But, um, you know, like, just want to cheer this little policy on and, and hope that it, it does continue. And it, it's still in place. Uh, and, and yes, like, for the reasons that, you, that you've kind of said, it, it, while it was, diversity was used in, in, you know, a different way, right, to uh, create this policy and, and, and get it passed. I mean, to seeing this outcome, these unintended outcomes are things that, um, that, uh, I really just can't help but seeing this this kind of uh, positive story, right? Uh, that sheds lights on um, again people people historically, um, you know, intentionally blocked out from a, a, a process of emigrating to the United States and thereby contributing. Uh, so, it, in that way, as much as so much of my um, you know my own teaching and, and and some of my writing aims, like yours and so many others, to to really complicate this picture and 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 break down these myths uh 
um, and these ideas about, you know, America as this, uh, again, land of nation of immigrants and, and things of all that sort that, that really does whitewash our, our history. It's this, uh, you know, this type of policy and, and the narrative that you, you bring about is, I don't know, I just can't help but feel a little hopeful. It's one of the little hopeful pieces of policy that I have. Like when, uh, when I kind of look to it and I'm imagining the future, right, and uh, discussing with other scholars, scholars like yourself or students and trying to imagine a, a better pathway forward, uh, you know, this lottery system is one of the few things I'll just say again that, that just makes me smile, right? Um, it makes me feel good in, in some way. And I can't exactly maybe pin why that is, but it, it does. It makes me feel that way. Um, well, I tried to make it not unrelentingly depressing. Um, and I'm glad that you got hope out of it because I think hope is in there, but there's also a lot of heartbreak. Um, and that ambivalence is something that I think I wondered if I should keep in the book, um, but I, I couldn't do it any other way. Um, cause I, I have both of those things. I think it's such a, it's a story that shows us what can happen if we get out of our own way. Um, right. That we don't actually need to try to select for the best and the brightest. We don't need to, to try to engineer the system that like just allowing for whatever, to whatever extent we can, the more free movement of people is, is just going to more beneficial. Um, and so I don't think it's a perfect policy. I, you know, we, we have, a, it's a very highly restrictive system and things are not looking so great for, for the near future, but it is a story that tells us that if we can gesture towards, if we can move towards more, more open and more inclusive ways of thinking about this issue, that there are real benefits to doing that. Um, and maybe I'll just leave it there. No, I appreciate that. I think there's a, there's a strong amount of, I think, um, of agency that's within here, although that may be, again, these are my words rather than, uh, I think, yours that I see. That's something that, that draws me to studying the past. I love, um, I really do use that word intentionally. I love seeing how ordinary people um, really just make the most uh, out of uh, an opportunity, even opportunities that weren't meant for them. I think that's maybe where I get my hope, right? It's it's not necessarily in this policy and, and how it was necessarily created, but more of the outcome and uh, how how people, particularly African migrants and, and others, right, have um, made this their own and made it work as much as rightly you say, right, this, it continues to have its limits. So uh, Migration, well, thank you. yeah, I'm sorry, I don't mean to interrupt. No, go ahead. But yeah, migration is such an act of hope, right? Yeah. To to walk to a new land, mm-hmm. just to in the the faith that um, that you can build a better life um, for yourself and your children. It's really it's so powerful, and I think that sometimes that that's why states are so intent on crushing it, right? Because you know um, each of us has real power in this world, and that's really scary. Well, Carly, thanks again uh, for coming on to the New Books Network and sharing your wonderful book, uh, Dreamland, America's Immigration Lottery in an Age of Restriction uh, with us. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much.